That's good. You got stuff to talk about. Uh, let's do some follow up really quick. Okay. Um, so last episode, which feels like weeks ago because it was, so we skipped because you just weren't committed to the show, Jeremy. Yep. You just threw your hands up and said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to be doing a lot of every week. I'll have to just see. <laughs> Might have to do some midnight recordings. Maybe so. Go back to recording from our home offices. At night while we're drunk. And I'll have to deal with my <laughs> echoey room. I'll have to deal with that. Oh, I can't go back to that. I, I still have that. pictures of my original setup with the little box that I would speak into. It was it was really tiny. Yeah, and I just didn't. Nothing worked well. Nothing worked that well. I think I'd have to get blackout curtains and just hang them up all across my walls. Because I have those two French door windows. Yeah, and so that's yeah. just, and I don't have a rug and it's just wood floors. So if you could on, yeah, if you could get, well, yeah, you'd have, you need to get some rugs in there. And then if you put, you need to put a bunch of, here, you can take that box of foam, put that foam up. Even with your door, even with your, those doors, as long as you have enough other acoustic absorbing material, like it, at microphone level around the room, it'll mm-hmm. absorb enough of it that it won't, it won't be horrible. My father's supposed to build me a TARDIS, a life-size TARDIS. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, if he did that and he, had, he actually got it to my house, I could put it in the corner of my office and turn that into a recording booth. It's not, it's easy to, <laughs> it's easy to soundproof small rooms. Big yeah. rooms are the worst. I mean, if you've got a, like a large, let's say like living room size room and it's, it doesn't, it's got hard floors and hard mm-hmm. walls. It's, that's, you have to be putting up a lot of acoustic material. Yeah. If, especially if it doesn't have furniture or if it has hard furniture. Yeah. It's very difficult. Anyway. All right. All right follow up. Um, so last week we talked about the TypeScript. I think we had some questions about using TypeScript with lightning and I, I mentioned the topic and I'd mentioned the Belgian beer explorer. Um, I wrongfully attributed that to um, Charlie Jonas. Um, he did fork it in order to play around with TypeScript and learn it, but it was originally created by uh, Christoph Conrads. So I uh, just wanted to give that quick correction. Credit where credit's due. Um, and then open force. Um, I'm not sure if you have any better words on open force and describing it. We were kind of still trying to figure out what it was, and I think it was still trying to figure out what it was, what it is. Um, and so we got a little more clarification on that. Well, give so for people who didn't listen to the previous episode. First of all, shame on you. Yeah. Second really of shame. all, um, give give a quick background on what it is, and then what we got wrong, and and correct it. I guess if you can, if you can, you I don't can, think if I you can. can manage that. I can't. I have a well, brain, brain. Okay, so what? So open force right is now. this idea of having a central place that is kind of a directory or maybe a gathering point, also collaboration point for all kinds of open source, really software. Right? It's not. It's not random other crap. It's really for open source software that's somehow related to the Salesforce ecosystem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we so we get we we knew that it exists and it was a thing and a high super high level. We, we got some things wrong. So what were the corrections? Do you have those? Uh, so one of the things we were struggling with was understanding how it was going to, what kind of directory it was going to be. Was it a directory that you would move your source code to this open force uh, GitHub? Yeah. And that's where it would be hosted yeah. and managed, or if it was going to be linking out to it and all those different types of things. Um, so I believe the clarification that we got, or at least the the understanding that we got, is that it would just be a link. Um, you, it wouldn't be owned by the, the open force. Yeah, so keep your GitHub repository where it is. Right. We can link to it, but also... Um, Again, there's like some kind of collaboration and communication aspect just as well. I'm not, oh, there's also talk at, at, of doing either something in our Slack or maybe a separate Slack or a Gitter or something like that. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. We, okay. we do have a, a uh, topic. What do they call them in Slack? Workspaces? A channel? channel. A channel. Channel. So we have a channel for open source. So if you're interested in learning more about it or contributing Wait, or for open force or open, or open force. Okay. 
What were you saying? Open source? You said a channel for open source. Oh, open force. I thought that's what you meant. So, yeah. So a channel for this thing so that right. we can have just kind of real, real time slash asynchronous discussions about it. Yeah. At least for now. I mean, they may decide to move it somewhere else at some point. But, uh, so there was two, uh, so, so the, the, cra- the, let me just read these things. Cause I think it'll say it better than, than I can say it. Um, so this is about open force and it's, um, we're focused on, we're just focused on open source code. So don't put anything in there that's proprietary or anything like that. Just make sure it's open source and you want it to be open source. Uh, secondly, um, and I'll, again, I'm reading. So when I say we, it's not me. We want to create a community of collaborators, not just an index where we maintain, but rather a place where people can gather and work on stuff and share stuff with each other. Think of it as a makerspace or workspace where like-minded people can hack on stuff. Um, anyone that wants to put a new net new project or move a project to canonically be on OpenForce can have a repo for that and full admin rights to that repo. Anyone that just wants their stuff indexed can do a request and will include their project in the search tool. Um, and then it says, so let's... You, let's say you and a buddy bang together some widget or thing, you can toss it up on OpenForce and run the project out of there if you want to, and hopefully it will become a natural space for others to notice your widget and to contribute to it. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think uh, Jeremy coined the phrase uh, as, as a place for part gathering point, part incubator. Hmm, okay. Which I thought was very insightful, so I wanted to give you credit for that. <laughs> and it's just kind of a go-to, like when you're working on some project and you're like, ah, I need something that does this. Yeah. But you come here and look first. Yeah. I guess, right? Kind of the idea. I've been poking around. There's a lot of cool stuff down there that I did not know existed. Well, there's, so it looks like there's maybe a half a dozen repos here, seven, maybe seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, like, I clicked into one, like this HTT Pex, a cute name. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a clone of, or a fork of, I guess, the original one. So again, I don't know, not sure what the, you're supposed to, I don't know. Why it's forked here? I mean, I don't know if you're supposed to. I don't think any development's going going to go on here. So I don't. I don't know if someone will keep doing, uh, keep keep this fork up to date with what the original um, repo is doing, or uh, that, or they're moving it there, and that could be too. Like, yeah, could be. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where this evolves. I'm trying to think if I've got anything useful to go there. Probably don't. If your whole to- your whole data integration tooling but i'm sure that's proprietary to you when it's well it's also not salesforce oh. i mean it's like it doesn't it's, have to be salesforce does it? Oh, i guess it's open force uh, yeah it's <laughs> i mean it has a salesforce connector but it also has all kinds of connectors so it's not but and it's also not open source i mean i i maybe wouldn't like to i don't know i haven't figured out the if there if there is even a business model for it mm-hmm. um but until i've decided that it's not a closed source one, then I'm going to keep it under wraps. But eventually, but that's definitely a possibility. Mm-hmm. I've got a few different things that I'm just like, maybe I should just open source that because I don't have, you know, when you've, when you've been through it, I think you have more respect for how much work, like outside of coding, it actually takes to make, to productize and market and get all the legal stuff right and have cells and support. And oh my God. Mm-hmm. And costs, I think, more than the actual development of the thing does a lot of times. Yeah. It's kind of like people don't realize, but you may end up with more test code than production code and in, in software projects. And that's okay. I mean, depending. Depending on your philosophy. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, I think 
I got to be careful because I do think that, that I've seen products where there is actually too much test code. There's because it's, it's redundant test code. It's not designed well. Um, when one, th when, when you, you know, when you break one thing in application, you'd expect like a specific thing, like you should, you know, you should see a test fail and you know, these things where you'll see like 50 tests fail because of the same exact thing. That just means you've got way too much overlapping coverage, which is, um, in addition to that being a pain in the ass, it also creates, I mean, you've got so much, um, liability there in terms of test code that, that doesn't have to be a liability, meaning test code has got to be maintained as the application evolves. Right. Oh, I never mess up an opportunity to rant on something or share my opinion. <laughs> I guess that's why I have a podcast. That is true. It's the only place that someone, people listen to me. <laughs> we hope. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's, you know, we have, we're up to, I think, four listeners now. Oh, nice. Um, so uh, next community topic. Um, this is actually a question that came in on our email. Uh, this one is not anonymous. We can use the name. So this is from Ray Deller. Uh, he says that every no that that would be dollar dollar ray. Oh, there you go, <laughs> y'all. Yep. <laughs> uh, he says every once in a while, listening to you two, you're struggling to remember the name of something. Uh, you've brought it up before. <laughs> yes, we are bad at that. <laughs> but how about publishing a live stream of your recording for live free community collaboration, Twitch or YouTube or both? Fairly easy to configure. Uh, we've been thinking about that a lot. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, in fact, uh, YouTube, I think, is launching a new live streaming with chat-enabled service, so kind of a Twitch competitor Okay, um, that I want to look into. Yeah. I, I've actually been th I'm thinking about that a little bit, too. Nothing serious, but again, with the setup we have, we, uh, it, it would, it's like the, all the odd different audio streams, so our various microphones in here, depending on how many people are, it's usually just two, but sometimes it's three or four, depending on people. Um, you've got the soundboard stuff, the computer stuff, you've got uh, potentially call-in people on, on Skype, so all the different audio channels, which normally go through, again, kind of multiple levels of um, EQ and compression and gating and limiting and noise reduction and, and um, then combine, you know, you've got, then you've got all kinds of things that uh, do handle things like anytime there's something on the bleep track, it mm -hmm. ducks all the other, so there's all this stuff. And I can, my, our current setup only allows us to do that as a post-processing function. Right. So we'd be bypassing all that. It, we'd be hearing what, what you and I hear right now, which is just completely raw. Um, and that's what we could stream because I could send that to an output channel mm -hmm. and as a, just a mix, right? And we could stream that. But it just doesn't sound great. And I, I thought, I've thought about that. I'm like, okay, I guess I wouldn't mind doing that maybe if it's just like goes to a stream that people are just listening to live. But if we were to do something that it would go to like, um, we'd have like a YouTube channel and go to uh -huh. those, I'd, I would want to like have those be like the good audio, the, the produced product, not just the raw thing that was out of the back of our, right out of our back, out of the back of our mixer. But we could always start out low tech, kind of do some dry runs, see how we like the experience or don't like the experience yeah. and then decide if we want to invest in the, but you know me, I am, I, I, I know. everything's got to be perfect. John. I know. I, know. <laughs> I cannot half-ass anything. This is my problem in life. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and it's funny when I, when I, when I realized that I don't have the time or energy or whatever left to, to do something like balls to the wall, mm -hmm. I just don't do it anymore. I'm I'm almost similar. I just stop. I can't I cannot handle doing something 80%, 80% good. It's got to be 100% good. But I think you're different uh, the difference between you and I is I think you actually try to start something until you get to a point where like I just 
don't have the time for this anymore. I get so wrapped up in trying to plan everything I'm going to be doing that I get overwhelmed and I don't even start it. Mm, yeah. And what's the term for that? Um, is that uh, uh, analysis paralysis, maybe? Maybe. Is that one of those terms? Maybe. That sounds right. Yeah. Sounds Sounds but, good. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would like the idea of like starting with just a live stream that people can listen to. It doesn't get recorded, doesn't get put on YouTube. It's just a live stream. If you want to, and we'll, you know, when we start recording, we'll post the link out in the Slack and then um, people can- I, th- I think the only reason I would think Twitch or YouTube is just it's accessible. But it, we could probably do it through those channels and yeah. maybe not publish it. They could just be private files until, yeah. until we decide to do something that we can then make them available for forever. Yeah, I, I, and, and I guess maybe that my point is, is like, I want them to be accessible live to people who have the link, but I don't want, I'm not ready yet for it to be accessible as a stored, you can play it back when you want format. Like, and I think what we do is we do the live stream and then whatever gets recorded, we make private and it just wouldn't show up. We could do that too. But what's, what is the software that everyone uses for podcasts to do, to actually do this, to do the streaming? Um, there's some software you buy in it it broadcasts it up to like some, or it doesn't really that. No, I'm using the wrong terms. It streams it live to like a server. And then that server, then like, there's like some, you know, CDN or network of servers. And so when, when people actually hit the link to listen live, you know, they're listening from these servers or cluster of servers that, that then actually broadcast it to people. Mm. That's something to look into. Or actually, actually, I guess the technical correct, technically correct word would be multicast. It's not a broadcast that doesn't exist on the internet. Right. IP does not support or TCP IP does not support broadcast. Isn't that right? It's more of a multicast. Okay. Lulu Dallas multicast. I, I believe you. <laughs> it's out of my pay grade. Did you even get that reference, John? I did. Okay. I, I've seen that movie once or twice. Parts of it. You, if you haven't seen that movie all the way through at least three times, then you suck. I know I've seen, I've seen it probably full in full once by watching parts of it at, at multiple attempts. Yeah. It loses me. It loses me at some point, and then I, I have to come back to it and try to revive it. Yeah, There's like I, a point where I just lose interest. I don't think I can sit through it at this point in my life. But yeah. that, that's like the 20 year old movie, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen it many times. All right. Well, that's all okay. the follow up. So we can get into some real topics now. Hmm. Um, I have a f- couple. F- <laughs> I didn't say what you thought I said. I was just fumbling my words. <laughs> words are hard. <laughs> I have a couple of topics, but we also have a couple of uh, videos that we want to react to, um, or at least talk about, because they pissed me off. Well, one of them pissed me off. Um, but before we get into that, I want to talk about action plans. I talked about last time, Financial Services Cloud, or maybe I didn't talk about it, but I know I talked about it on the Slack channel, that I was waiting for this great new feature that Salesforce had called Action Plans for Financial Services Cloud. The release came out and action plans are nobody found. Um, it turns out it was a delayed like a week in the release. And so we didn't really get the features until a week later. Um, I was kind of peeved because Salesforce was already doing demos with my client. And in that demo, I have a recording of it. They did not mention that action plans was a winter 19 release. At least not that I heard. I had to skip through it. It was two hours long. I can't believe they did a two hour <laughs> demo of everything. But, That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I didn't hear anywhere in there where they qualified that, but. Um, so I was kind of pissed because I had to. I had. I'm on the hook for evaluating and for coming up with a solution that uses action plans. Can I pause you for one second? Yeah. Is this like based on or related to like the action plans kind of package that Salesforce that is? A, that is a great question because that was my assumption was they were just taking that and including it in the package. Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason I'm bringing it up now is because I noticed something about the data model 
Um, and that is that action plan is not a namespaced custom object. It's a native object. So in my, in my oh, org really? that has financial services cloud huh. enabled, which has a license for this because it's a licensed feature, um, action plan is a first class citizen. So if you go look at the API name for an object, it's, there's like no underscore. There's underscore no underscore. C. There's a lot of. Does it end in underscore underscore C? Or mm, no? Okay. So no. That's, that yeah, it's a indicate new, that it's. Yeah, it's a new native object. Okay. So I have a feeling that. Salesforce and soon in the near future will open up action plans to across the board hmm. that or they've had so much demand for this type of functionality with their industry focused clouds that they needed that object. So pretty much the extent of my knowledge of action plans is I, I see the apex classes in in orgs. <laughs> That's pretty much all yeah. I know about it, but isn't it just like it's real lightweight project management kind of like almost just, you can kind of put a group of tasks kind of, or actions on on something, and then you can work yeah. through those. And it's yeah, it's it's almost it's not it's not like you know you don't get like critical path management and, and all kinds of like crazy project management stuff, right? It's just it's real, it's like it's a real lightweight task management system. Yeah, it's just a way to kind of templatize a grouping of tasks that That's you want term. to assign to people. Right, you write different templates, and then you can instantiate those templates onto a record or something. Yeah. Okay. And I I don't I don't know if this is a new feature or not because it's been a long time since I've used it because I hated it the first iteration. For those that still have the first iteration, upgrade that crap because the unit testing on it is horrible. Well, I shouldn't say that. So back then, way back when in the first days of building these type of things, when you wrote unit tests, you wrote your test for single, uh, for just regular normal operations of a trigger running on a single record. And then you wrote bulk testing because that was the best practice. You got to test your code and make sure it can handle 200 records. That's true, yeah. Um, well, that caused problems whenever you try to run tests and it's running 200 on top of 200 and you're doing all this bulk testing when you're trying to deploy your production. Because it's, your test really took slow, forever. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the early earlier iterations of act of the unmanaged package that was action plans had a bunch of that bulk testing in it. So it would try to create 200 records and sometimes it would break or fail or, or you just wouldn't be able to get anywhere because it would, I don't know, it just either way, it just wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get anywhere. So I wasn't a fan of it. Um, there's a new version three out now that's, I think, lightning enabled um, that I think is probably worth it. I'm not sure if this is a new feature or not, but traditionally I always saw it as you could assign it a, a task to a person or the person who creates the template. It seems now that, um, at least with Financial Services Cloud, you can assign it based on a account team role, which is really important for what I'm doing because that's functionality I don't have to build now. So that's new. And that's action plans. Hmm. Okay. I'll let you know if it's going to be any good. It, it does seem that um, they have locked it. It it seems like it's capable of working with other objects, but it right now, and according to the documentation and quote-unquote licensing, I'm only supposed to be able to use it with accounts. So I'm not sure what the deal is with that, but Weird. it's odd. <clears throat> well, since we're talking about packages, I mean, I didn't have this on my list or anything, but I do, can I ask you a question about, or can we talk about packages for a minute? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been dealing with this thing where you can have multiple, I guess, managed packages in an org and mm -hmm. they can very easily conflict with each other and just bring down your system. Which is odd because they're not supposed to. They're supposed to be isolated. Well, so let me just, this is just theoretical because I haven't seen this, but I've been using this as, as an example to explain to people what how these things can potentially go wrong. Let's say you have, you know, managed package number one mm -hmm. and it has an account trigger. Mm -hmm. And that account trigger... Uh, let's say it, it it updates contacts or inserts contacts or something. Okay. Then you have managed package number two that has a trigger on contacts, 
And if you insert or update a contact, it does something to that those contacts account. Mm-hmm. So some kind of DML, like say it, update, it updates the account, maybe with okay. um, let's say with a, a count of contacts or some something. Right. Well, when it updates that account, manage package number one account trigger is going to run, and right. it's going to update its contacts again. And here we are now in this infinite spiraling recursive loop. Right. So the the if a package is doing something that's inefficient or it's not even so, inefficient. It's just that they they're completely blind to how they need to design around someone else's triggers. Like I, you you don't know when you manage when you built your package, there was no infinite loop. It's not until you you plug another another managed package into the system that now you're going to have potential for an infinite that infinite loop. So you can be very efficient, bulkified, and everything else, but mm-hmm. you could just have these triggers. And I mean, again, it goes back to trigger what what I call trigger driven development. It's not a good model. Not a good model. Man, I, and I look at, uh, I was looking at some, um, I, I'm not going to name any, but a, a, you know, a well-known big open source Salesforce package product, I guess. Mm-hmm. That the source, it's, it's, well, source is available on GitHub. I'm not going to say it's open source. And yeah, there's just like, there's so much just, accidental complexity around triggers and managing triggers because there's so many there's so there's so many problems with them mm. and there's so many things you've got to watch out for and escape hatches and knobs and leverage you got to build into triggers nowadays um to, to because there are so many ways to blow off your appendages with triggers yeah i actually that was one of my topics for a few weeks ago that got dro- dropped and that was that I, over time i've been building all those switches and all those escape hatches and they've recently started biting me in the ass they, I, they can. And, and I used to have limiters, and now I'm like, I can't use limiters anymore because the limiters, I, things are happening at different points in times because of other things updating at, at odd times that my limiter ends up preventing my code from running when it needs to run. That's the problem with all these things. In fact, that's, that's a problem I've always had. With, I know what you mean by limiters. Like, you, know, you can set the trigger to like, you know, hey, only run, if you run more than three times, then just stop running. Right. Well, now you're, now you're going to have data integrity problems yep. because it needed to run. I mean, it... Someone updated your your con your account, and your job is to keep th- that account's number of contacts rolled up to the account. Then you got to run every time a contact's inserted. You can't just yeah. say, "Oh, I've already run three times. I'm not gonna. I don't care about these other contacts that are getting created now." You can't do that, right? And then and, there there are other things where I try to front <clears throat> try to inspect to see if I need to run by inspecting the data or doing some queries. Well, now I'm still in the same situation because now I'm running queries. I may not be doing DML, but now I'm still running a bunch of queries, sure. and I'll hit a SQL limit. Yep. Now, my understanding, and someone, I feel like this is a, something, one of these things that's often uh, misunderstood, and I very well could be misunderstanding this, but a lot of the limits, SQL queries is one of them. It's 100, right? You get 100. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, there's actually can be multiple sets of those limits that can stack on top of each other. So first of all, in your unmanaged space, it gets its limit of 100. Mm-hmm. If you have a managed package number one in there, it can also do 100 in the same transaction. Right. So bringing you up to 200. Right. You can have managed package number two, number three that can bring you up to 300 total SQL limits. Yep. That's like, but um, there's some things you can't escape out of, which is good. Like I think the, the CPU time, it's cumulative and no one, you, you share the same limit. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you do, because if you do have something that's just spiraling out of control, like something's got to stop it. Right. But a lot of those things you get, each namespace essentially each package namespace gets its own 
its own set of those limits. It doesn't have to share with, with other namespaces. All right. And don't forget process builder processes, processes. It's the right plural. But they, sh- they share it. So it's the, it's the package that shares the limits, whether it's a trigger or a workflow update or a process builder right. or whatever. Um, yeah. And there were some other things I was going to mention about that too. I forget now. Just these, these package problems. The inefficiencies oh, no, or the was, way it's installed or. So the limiters, those are trouble, right? Yeah. I, think, I mean, yeah. you'd have to be really careful. You have to, kn- don't just think to yourself, oh, I'll just, you know, if it runs more than three times, it just, I'll just have it stop so it doesn't create problems. Th- think through that before mm-hmm. you implement that. It may be better to just let the transaction fail. Well, the other, yeah. Did you find your thought or because I have another thought? I do that. have one more thought okay. that's related, so let me do that one. The other thing is, you know, Salesforce doesn't let you just willy-nilly uh, deactivate triggers in production. Right. And there's a really good reason for that. And I also, I would be, I would uh, send caution to anyone thinking of implementing their own or, or using like one of these trigger frameworks that allows you to disable triggers in production or effectively disable triggers in production. Mm-hmm. Is that unless you've tested every combination of enabled and disabled triggers, uh, you probably shouldn't disable triggers in production because you really don't know what's going to happen now. That's another one that bit me in the ass. Yeah, it will. It will bite you in the ass. So just, I recommend, you know, people want that. Oh, can we just disable this? No, you can't do that because you don't know what's going to happen. We have not tested that code path yet. Yeah. And if, you know, your most triggers, most, you know, non-trivial orgs have triggers that do all kinds of stuff with data, keep data in sync, keep data, you know, integrity, you know, all kinds of stuff. And you can't just turn a trigger off. Yeah. I do, I do still build in a, a, an enabled feature it's just a static um, variable so that I can turn it off on certain operations that I, where I know I don't, don't need to run it. Yep. Um, whether it's from a batch or um, sometimes, sometimes when I'm setting up unit test data. I was going to say, I've got a great test case, <laughs> which is I've had situations in, in, again, big non-trivial orgs where just setting up the data you need, which yeah. is an unnatural thing to do. Like you would never in one transaction create an account, a bunch of contacts, yeah. courses and classes and registrations. You would never ever do that in one transaction. Right. Except for a test, you need to because you're starting out with a blank slate. Yeah. And so you hit limits simply trying to get your test fixture created. Yeah. So in that case, yeah, that's I've done these things where like I just have to implement some kind of bypass. Now I never do that in production. I don't use it for production, but it's, right. it's only when I'm setting tests. I can just do like kind of like raw insert my data without any triggers firing. Yeah, it's not a global thing. It's per per, hand, per handler. handler. Okay, so each handler will have an en- enable feature, and I just tell it disable or enable. Yep. What I haven't decided is how granular or how big my handlers need to be. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm, I might. I try to have a handler per per it's module. Ha- it's embarrassing to have small handlers, John. It is. My <laughs> my handlers are kind of big though. <laughs> They're embarrassingly big. <laughs> It's like a big belly. My handlers are like a big belly. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty tame. I wasn't sure where you're going with that, but <laughs> well, because I'll have a function, I'll have a, what's the right way to say it? A, a feature, a, a set of code or logic that can get executed from multiple objects, meaning there's multiple entry points to it. So my handler will have like 10 um, methods for before, or after different type scenario functions, but they're all supposed to call the same class it's just it's trying to handle all those different yeah. uh triggering points mm-hmm. i'm not sure how to say that but hopefully you catch my drift trigger sources i guess or whatever maybe i guess yeah. events it's, it's yeah. just trying to capture all these different events and know when it needs to run this automation yep um so sometimes they get kind of big and so it's it's tough to say do i have one enable disable 
or do I have enable for this method or this object event or disable for and disable it for this other object event? And again, on in in, in somewhat complex you know builds, it, it can be actually very difficult to even know what you which one you should enable, disable, whatever. And also, this is anytime you're getting to that that level of complexity or that type of org. I always recommend people, you know, look at doing like an, an like an aggregate analysis. I'm not even sure that's the right term, but like, and you kind of have to have designed your your objects this way anyway. But figure out what your aggregates are, and this is a I'm, I'm, when I say that I'm using I'm, I'm saying that in the using the DDD kind of mm-hmm. definition of that. So this is God, it's so hard to explain, but I, I kind of try to explain it. So it's basically the idea that. Uh, an aggregate is like a group of things or objects, I guess, in the Salesforce world. And there's there's one main one that's got like the main identity or whatever, mm-hmm. and then um, it contains like other related ones. So like a you know, a, I don't know, a car has wheels and has an engine and has um, behaviors and th- actions and things it does. And it doesn't make sense to like control wheels outside of a car that, or, or even like control the gear the car is in or whatever. Like you should do that through the car, through the car mm-hmm. interface or whatever. So, so in that case, like, you know, the, the, the car and the wheel and the engine and the transmission, that's all you're, you're an aggregate of an aggregate of objects, right? An aggregation right. of objects. But the, the, the car is what you call the aggregate root. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that you kind of load everything up into and then it can it can control like your business processes and essentially what we would think of as like validation rules and triggers. And you say so you do all that through the, so anytime, you know, if you, if you have a trigger that comes in through the tire or through the engine or through the door or whatever, it just assembles the whole aggregate mm-hmm. of the car. But then it, then you operate through the aggregate route to the car because that's where like integrity is enforced, things are done and it's a top down thing. And then when you're done making these changes or whatever, you know, it also kind of knows how to save the whole, the whole thing. It's just such a such a better model than just like trigger hell. It it's, is. it's a way to avoid trigger hell, and it's, there's no way to completely avoid you know trigger hell, but it's it, you can avoid you know a, a big percent of it if you if you think about it that way. And it's funny because that's the exact scenario that broke my limiter, because the tire said, "Oh, something affects the car." The bumper said, "Something affects the car." Yep, and so the the stuff that if the bumper that said I affected you, the t- the car goes, no, nah, it wasn't that bad. I don't have to worry about it. But it logged that I processed that ID because I, the limiter is based on the ID and okay. a count on the ID. Okay. It wasn't a global limiter saying only run this trigger once. It was, it tried to be a little bit smarter and say, I've seen this ID already. Okay. I don't need to process mm. it again. But when you have two different things aggregating saying, oh, we both affected you. This one didn't do anything, but it came in first. And now the tire can't tell the, op- the, Hard to do anything. I'm trying to use your analogy, but I'm really thinking account, contact, and opportunity yeah. is what I'm really thinking. And you know, I'd be interested if anyone listening has um, ideas on this, or if they've got something concrete, or even if like does the um, the financial force what are they, what's their some of their libraries called the I don't even know what they call them, but the, like the FF lib stuff. Yeah, we do those. The, the problem Does I have help with any of this, or at least have maybe some kind of patterns and maybe I just it? need some better ideas. The, the my problem with frameworks is I'm. I'm usually these these one and done quick shot things. You know, I have to build a trigger for a client. Heard that about you. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? <laughs> Turning red. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, I, I'm I'm in these one and done scenarios, so it's tough for me to kind of build out and architect this 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 framework system that's supposed to live and this client's supposed to somehow know that I've used this framework and advance it and build on top of it. It just it it feels like, do I use a framework? Do I build that complexity in? I'm just doing this one and done thing. I mean, there's always a. But certain... There are times where I'm have built a relationship with a client. And I go, oh, I wish I did this with something more elegant because we've just kind of been evolving it over time and there's no budget for me to there's no budget for this new trigger i have to build that i'm like oh it's only two hours to build that trigger but i look back at the technical debt and go oh crap i really need like 20 hours oh, here yeah. how do i go back and say that and that, that's tough with i feel like that's harder in the consulting yeah. space too because you don't own it and you don't get to make that decision on where you invest in paying down technical debt right and most of the time the client doesn't even understand that yeah. or why they should or, yeah it, it, I don't well, know, and, and also it means I got to touch that code and I got to break that code and we've got to test that code. And it's more than just the time it took me to refactor it. It's the time it takes to test and deploy yeah. and validate it and that whole cycle again. And it's not like refactoring in Salesforce is, yeah. you know, extremely easy. <laughs> I don't know what That's when I'm just like, you know what? I'm done with this client. I'm moving on to a new one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're one and done, huh? Yep. Well, anyway. Anyways, um, well, let's see. I just noticed today. I saw in the news that Microsoft just released earnings. They they kind of blew it out. Let's see. Wait, let's see how they're doing in after hours. Um, yeah, no, they were up like five percent. Now they're like up like two and a half percent. But they uh, they beat EPS by twenty cents with a reported one dollar fourteen cents uh, EPS, and they beat revenue. Uh, they're at nineteen percent year over year growth, which is Wow, that's remarkable for how old of a company they are. Yeah. Uh, $29.1 billion for the quarter. So that, what's that? Put them at a $120 billion run rate? Wow. Yes. I mean, just to put that in perspective, that's 10 times bigger than Salesforce. And Salesforce is a big company with like 30,000 employees. Um, let's see. Their productivity and business had an 18% year-over-year growth. With office commercial products and cloud service revenues up 16%, and LinkedIn is up 33%. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the number of connections people have made or the number of spam recruiters that have tried to spam people? What is that? What are they, what are they measuring there? I'm not sure. Or is it just ad revenue that's on LinkedIn? <clears throat> I guess people, I forget, people pay money to LinkedIn. They do. Yeah. There's a, pre, there's a pro service. Every time I log in, it's trying to get me to sign up for that pro service. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. They, they uh, appeal to your, to your, um, to your curiosity, though, they do it by saying, don't you want to see who's been looking at you? Come on, sign up for the pro. Then you can see who's been looking at your profile. I don't care. And all that did was go, oh, crap, I've been clicking on a bunch of people's profiles just trying <laughs> exactly. to see who they, like, yeah. I'll get a client. I'll be like, oh, let's go see what their profile looks like. And now I'm, now I'm not doing that anymore because I like, can see who looked at you. Yeah. If, they, if they pay for it, yeah. And I have that, I mean, I'm, I don't know. That's, like, that's, I'm not trying to be a stalker. I was just curious. <laughs> that's that's the, and I guess that's one of the main use cases, but that's the only thing I ever use LinkedIn for is um, if I you know I'm going to be working with something, I might just like look them up real quick, just to kind of see yeah. what their background is or yeah. whatever. And uh, yeah, I hate to think that that's, that also goes back to like, there's no they privacy. You're smiling bug like, looking back I know, at them. It's just, like, no, there's no, <laughs> I mean, in some way or another, like everyone is looking at the webpage I'm looking at. They know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and also that goes kind of back to that customer 360 thing Salesforce has now, which is not quite what I thought. I did, I did read into that a little bit. Maybe we can talk about that. But anyway, back to Microsoft. The intelligent cloud is up 24% to $8.6 billion in revenue. Now, what is the intelligent cloud, John? I have no idea. 
Azure? I think that's what they renamed. I think it includes Azure because it says Azure was up 76% year over year. Uh, Azure has been getting really popular. It is. It's still, I saw um, like a, the latest kind of revenue breakdown of cloud providers. It's still like, it's AWS. It's still AWS and then everyone else is yeah. like the next, I think Azure is next or maybe it's GCP. I can't remember. I got into like two and three, but it's such a drop off from one to two, like more than an order of magnitude. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was last year, I guess Azure was up 90% year over year. This, this year it's up 76%. I mean, you can't grow at 90% every year, right? No. It's, I mean, at first I would have said that a lot of that growth was just companies who are stuck on the Microsoft Teat that just went along with it and loaded up Azure. But I've seen some, what do they call it, greenfield projects that um, have chosen Azure oh, as yeah. their no, there's, platform, yeah. There, and there's, I mean, I've just, kind of just based on some demos I've seen and, and uh, people that, you know, things I've heard. I mean, Azure's got a lot of cool stuff. I just, I haven't had time to, I'm so just busy with stuff and everything that I've built. Pretty much is, is AWS. That's, that's what killed the dinosaurs. They didn't have time to evolve. They're that's too true. busy. Yeah, something, something's going to get me one of these days, John. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's, a, if it's a giant meteor, then asteroid. What, what, what is it? Asteroid, I guess. Asteroid or comet or... Then so be it. Anyway, uh, I also noticed that their interesting surface was up 14%, but just in the period, but... Apparently, I've seen those everywhere. And, and apparently, though, that there, was, there weren't even any new... Actually, the only new Surface product was the Go, which is a, actually a low selling point to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's up um, 14% just in that period is actually quite impressive because they're about to release like a whole like new generations of stuff and new... Yeah. New, like, are they going to do like laptops and stuff? Yeah, but they're all those hybrids. Laptop the, 2, Studio 2, Pro 5 are all coming out. I see them everywhere. I, I mean, I go into clients' offices all the time, and they're all decked out with those services. Yeah. My only question is, is because they have that little flip thing that stands it up, because the the keyboard is just like a little flimsy little thing, mm. but they have that flip thing that holds that makes it stand. Yeah, so you can see it. Mm-hmm. I think about sometimes I'm somewhere and I'm literally using my lap on my laptop, right? Or my laptop on my lap. Yeah, we knew what you meant, <laughs> and I'm like. If I had a surface, would I still be able to do that? That would be weird. There'd be this like thin little piece digging into my leg. Oh, yeah. So, Maybe not. Yeah. Not sure. I mean, you don't use your iPad like that. But it's that's the thing. Like you. No, you, I'm an old man. I haven't have an actual stand, yeah. a kiosk stand arm that yeah. I use with my iPad. <laughs> and why? Because I fall asleep with it and I hit myself in the face. You think? Oh yeah. <laughs> or have you? Am I? <laughs> And it's an iPad Pro, so that's the big sucker. This has probably happened to everyone, but I see it happen to my kids quite a bit, and my wife sometimes. But the people, they'll just be laying like in bed on their back, mm-hmm. and they'll be holding like the phone or the iPad right, mm-hmm. o- right over their head, like, yeah. you know, like their face is up and on the, they're just laying on the you know, back of the head on the pillow, and they're holding their iPad right over their face and or their phone, and they just accidentally drop it and it just smashes right into their face. <laughs> you know, that's I mean, you got to admit that's happened to you. It has. Yeah. That's why I got the arm. Okay, because I did that too yeah. many times, and that thing is big and and heavy. Now, do you think uh, with this surface that, and the fact that it's got, you know, that doesn't have a pen and it's touchscreen and all that? It does. Have do, a, do you think Apple's missing out because they're either just stubborn and won't do it, or they don't want to be seen as copying, or they just don't think it's actually a good model for that type of computing? Do you think they're missing out? you think Microsoft's got something there over them? You mean like the whole stylus or making the, that? The that, stylus and, and the fact that it's a touchpad and also that it's just, I don't know. I don't that, think that whole built in kind of keyboard, it's almost like a trend. 
it's not just a tablet. It's more of a transition type product. I don't think they're missing out. I, I think they'll eventually get there. I think we'll start to see so. more powerful iPads that will end up being, they've already started being more content creation than consuming these days. But Oh, um, someone was saying that iOS, I guess, iPads are getting full, full Photoshop. Did you hear about that? Like, no. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're getting, pow- they're getting stronger and more powerful. I, I just think that the, for the younger generation with the way they've grown up with technology and the way they use technology, this whole keyboard concept thing is more of an us thing than it is a they thing. My kids are perfectly fine. I mean, they, there are games that they play on their iPads that I'm like, I can't do this. I need a controller. Yeah. And they're just whizzing around with their screens. And I'm like, how are you doing that? I don't know. There's just some things that a keyboard is without a doubt the right tool. And well, like, it is, but they have keyboards on their screen and that they don't, we miss tactile feedback with keyboards. They don't, they don't know tactile yeah. feedback. Or know. If they do, it's, it doesn't bother them because it's not their primary means. Like my oldest, he, he already, because he does a lot of Minecraft and on an actual laptop. Yeah. And um, he's, I think, very much hooked on having a keyboard. Is I mean, it? I just watch him. It's just like, it's, it's almost like you're watching like the lawnmower man or something. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> he's just such a ridiculous expert on, you can't even see what he's doing. His hands are moving back and all these slash commands at just like the speed of light. Well, that's why on esports, you have to be young to play though, because the, the reflexes are faster. I guess so. No, it's true. Once you get a certain age, your reflexes just aren't fast enough and you can't compete. So that's the good news on Microsoft. The bad news is all this mass file deleting that Windows 10 has been doing. You, you follow I this? heard about that. Yeah. It was on that release. Yeah. Like, this has been an ongoing problem because I feel like I've been hearing about this for, for months now and they, they just tried to do another update to Windows 10, but they actually pulled it back because it also was mass deleting files. That's what the right. hell is going on? I don't know. Was was it some kind of sync bug with their cloud service or something? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really read into it, but just like, damn, come on, Microsoft. Yeah. Someone didn't write write enough unit tests. <laughs> I guess so. I think this would be integration tests, though, since it's actually dealing with input and output file system. Oh, maybe. So, like I said, I I looked into this. Actually, I looked into two things: the Open Data Initiative, mm-hmm. which, by the way. Was announced on again. That's the thing with who was it? It was SAP, Microsoft, and said Adobe. I think the, I think those are the, the three big ones. Announced on September twenty fourth, and then Salesforce announces its answer to that on September twenty fifth. Can you imagine the scrambling that was happening in that twenty five hour period? People working on the clock, you know, crafting press releases, coming up with some idea. How can we you know respond to this? Because um, I have been. I would say reliably informed that that Salesforce's customer 360 is absolute vaporware. So I wouldn't be surprised if it, literally in that 24 hour period, they were scrambling to what can we, what story can we come out with? That is something we can actually, that's, that's a good I think, answer. I think they had a little bit more notice than that. Maybe they I did. was hearing about it. Okay. Were you? Yeah. Before? I, was, yeah. I was hearing about it before, but I, I don't think it exists and I haven't seen anything tangible that says it exists. Um, in, in, from certain things I've read and seen, and I'm not exactly sure where I read them because I, I, it wasn't for the show. I was just reading them. I think they're trying to leverage MuleSoft for that to be the platform for their 360. Okay, so kind of, but kind of, but not really. So yes and no. I hate that answer. Yeah. But y- yes, and I think you're. you're well, they want right. 360 was is supposed to encompass all the applications that they own and get that data into a single spot. Right. But as uh, also, well, you're kind of wrong about that too. But 
Yeah, it's not. It's about it's about having access to that data. Yeah, right. Not have it in a single spot, yeah. but having access to that data from yeah. any one of these. In sources. fact, they're they're critical of having data, having copies of the data. I guess that's yeah. that's how they're that's how they're um, positioning against the o, the OD. I guess to call it ODI. Easier to say yeah. is because they're not syncing or copying. Which, by the way, I don't think ODI necessarily does either. It's anyway. So the thing I thought ODI was originally was. Because again, I feel like these art these articles oftentimes aren't written well. They're they're not, but they don't. They're, they're not, not technical enough for me, I guess. And I don't. I don't think the writers understand them. It, but that's yeah. They're just well. They're just regurgitating press releases for the most part. Um, but hang on a second. Hey, John. Well, Are you looking I something just, up, or uh, you're getting distracted? No, I just I, can't, I feel like I can't go past this with that. Keep in mind, these aren't. Real journalists, Richard. They're tech journalists. I know I'm I'm slow to the drop. Anyway, um, you've gotten old. You used to be quick on those. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't have the system I used to have, and I have just haven't found a replacement yet. I don't know. Someone write me some software. It's got to run on OS 10 or sorry Mac OS. Is that mm-hmm. what we're calling it nowadays? I don't know. Last Mac, time I Mac, said last Mac, time I said OS 10, you gave me the right act. But. Or is it, I think it's Mac OS X, right? <laughs> um, no, what I thought it was was uh, that you that Adobe and Microsoft and SAP and all the other companies that sign up for this can basically share your data across them, and your enterprise data is kind of in all these different systems. And and I thought, well, that's the, exactly the kind of crap that I'm that's I don't like nowadays. Is that everyone's got data on me, including all, you know, all of Salesforce's marketing stuff. I mean, they're they've got their tracking cookies and everything everywhere you go. Salesforce and its customers are tracking you. You are in their journeys. They know where you are. They know what you're doing. They know what you searched for. They know what you bought. They know what you want to buy. They know who you. They know who your social graph is and what they like to buy and do. And they know where you're going. They probably know what vacation you're planning. They know everything, right? Mm-hmm. This is Salesforce and its customers and all these other people too. Adobe, they're big on this. Are you trying to paint a negative here? Because that sounds positive no, for just, any company that wants to oh, it is. sell no, they you love something. It. I mean, trust me, there are marketers <laughs> listening right now that are salivating <laughs> when they hear that. That's exactly what they want. But it's exactly what lot, most consumers who are, who are woke who don't want. <laughs> Did that just make it on our show? Oh, my God. <laughs> we are woke, John. I am woke. If you say so. <clears throat> I'm woke in the worst way. <laughs> So, yeah, then this is, you know, like privacy advocates and who, who's the, who, who are the, like the big kind of nonprofit that are protecting privacy? Is it not ACLU? The, what's the internet kind of focus? Oh. Um, anyway. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. But. Like, why are they not up in arms or whatever? And it, but it turns out, I, again, there's, there are no real concrete. I haven't, I didn't, I tried to download like a spec. Oh, let me read the spec for this thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't find anything yet. I can all I can find is it because all the three big companies they put up a main page like a like a landing page for this on their website that you know with pretty graphics and all that stuff but I couldn't find anything significant or substantial. Hmm. But I think actually I think what it more is it it puts the individual enterprises in control. Like if you're let's say you're an Adobe customer and you use Adobe for marketing, but use SAP for you know your you know your HR and your customer master and all this other crap. You can, within your control, choose to federate these things, basically, or whatever, and have that 
single data model. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the, what was that big? There was used to be a big term. It was like master data management or something like that that got big in the, I swear it was like the 90s, maybe it was the 2000s. Still kind of a big thing. I know. I, just, I, it's, I think it's that, changed names, but it's still well, essentially the yeah, same Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, um, it, regardless of what technology you try to throw out, it's just a fundamentally hard problem that mm-hmm. you kind of have to keep solving all the time. Kind of like integration. Like, we've had integration forever. And it still is like this, kind of an unsolved problem. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's tools there that solve it, but you've got to keep solving these things all the time. Yeah. So I, I, I think the way I understood is, is what you're leading up to, which is that it, it prevents the data from being so proprietary to that software system. That it allows you the, the ability to kind of share and transfer the, or allow access to that information without it being locked behind some kind of proprietary format. Right. It's the way I understood it. I th- it yeah. And I'm, get, I'm, I'm doing a lot of speculating here, but I think it's a, it's a common model. And it's also a way to map, basically to map from and to systems through that common model. And I don't know if it's more like you're keeping copies of these things everywhere or if it's more like the Salesforce model where they're just keeping the data wherever it originated and mapping real time, kind of mapping through like some kind of transform real time. Salesforce is also doing, a, um, they're taking more of a, what, there's a certain type of integration. It's almost like that composite application mm-hmm. style of integration. There's, I think there's another word for it too. But basically what I mean by that is you might have like, you know, look at a screen, like one frame is like kind of main information about some, some entity. And then you've got like a, maybe a related list that's actually a, a kind of a view in from like another system. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's a, just a, 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 you know, a pane of, of fields that come from another system. And almost you can think of it as kind of like your eye framing in stuff from other systems or whatever. Right. And Salesforce has kind of taken that approach because they talked about how they've got packages for service cloud, marketing cloud, and probably sales cloud, I think, minimum where you can install this package and it gives you these little windows in from to the other system for that. And so Salesforce, you know, somehow now they're going to sign a, what are they called? A, it's a 360. By the way, I like how, you know, you read this Salesforce's press release on this, you know, they call it customer 360. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, man, they've been telling us for 20 years now that Salesforce gives you the customer, the 360 of the customer. But now they're saying, you know what? <laughs> I know we've been saying we've given you the 360, but we really haven't. So now we're going to need you to do this thing. If you really want the 360 of your customer, <laughs> but I think they call it like a universal ID, like a, the, your, your customer 360 universal ID, something like that. And so it's a, it's a night because, you know, marketing cloud and sales cloud, like you've got to do integrations between yep. these things. They're, they're, it's, it's not the same. They're going to have their different IDs. Mm-hmm. Salesforce has their 18 character IDs they've had forever. Marketing that probably has it's some kind of SQL server, you know, universal or GUID or, mm-hmm. or just some integer or something. I don't even know. And they're, and you somehow map those, you got to link them up and map them and whatever. Yeah. Um, and so what this is going to do is actually assign, you know, it's going to be somewhere there's like going to be a master table of universal IDs and then, what the corresponding IDs for each system and kind of tie all these federate these IDs so that you can have this composite application type thing where you just install a managed, pa- you know, like say you're in sales cloud, well, you, you might have a marketing cloud and managed package you install in there. I know they already have managed packages for these things, but for mm-hmm. like integration or whatever, but this is something new where it gives you like a marketing cloud view inside your sales cloud. So there, yeah. Salesforce, it's not just about the data. It's also about, views into data and kind of enhancing existing, I think, interf- like uh, user interfaces. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking through the, the whole universal ID, and that, that's, that's good. That comes from the MDM, the MDM days, but there's, there's complexity in you that. You say that as if that's, so that's the thing, MDM? That's I'm, the thing. I'm just yeah. that up. Master Data Management. Master Data yeah. Management, okay. 
Yeah, it's a thing. And what what ends up happening is because the way you different businesses handle accounts in different ways. There's there's divisions. There's the way you service them. There's the way you bill to them. So a company could end up being represented by ten different IDs. But depending on how you want to use them, you may roll them up. You may roll them down. So the the whole universal ID can get really complicated really quick. This whole three sixty of your thing can get really complicated really quick if you're not it's, if you're not dealing with a very simple data model. Right. And and the truth is, it's just it's it's an abstraction over yeah all of your different data. Yeah. I mean, maybe it works well. I don't know because we haven't seen it, but. That's what I've seen the bigger challenge when it comes to, to to managing all this data and try to get it consolidated into one cohesive view. And maybe that's what this is bypassing is that whole one cohesive view. Instead of that, you just have all these little windows and whatever whatever way that system chose to represent that information, whether it's one account or 10 accounts for as, as an example, maybe that's what you see. You see the 10 accounts for your one account yep. in Salesforce. And I've, uh, see, I've done integrations that are kind of along these lines where you're, you're doing transforms between the systems, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you're, you've got contacts in one system and contacts in the other system, and you're essentially keeping them in sync, kind of. And where it can get tricky is when the, when like, one example, like when the data models are different. Like, so, so like in Salesforce, for example, um, on contacts you have, they have like two addresses. It's a, it's, Salesforce has a very denormalized, like they... <laughs> when they started out, they were like, we're, let's just create us. And it was. I mean, Salesforce was very, very, very simple. And so to, instead of addresses being a related list, which almost all systems, I mean, I, the vast majority of systems have addresses as a related list. I mean, mm-hmm. back from contact managers from decades ago to you know new patient management systems, student management systems, all these, they almost all have addresses and things like phone numbers and even email addresses as related lists because you don't know how many you're going to need to track for someone. Right. And so, you know, mapping between the related list, the, like the one to many addresses, and then Salesforce is just, it's a one to one, it's a one to one, right? It's um, right. Or, or a fixed number to one, basically, in this case. So it's like, I guess different cardinalities. Is that what, is that the way to think of it? I think it's probably, I don't know. We're going to start bastardizing data, term, data science terminology <laughs> here or information management. And, in, and even within Salesforce, like for example, I mean, Salesforce has their own managed packages, which will create like a, a new address custom object. And it has triggers that, that sync in between mm-hmm. like the two addresses you get on the contact and the related list. And it's just, and there's, yeah, you can like mark which one's preferred or primary and the, it tries to keep them in sync, but it still does the wrong thing sometimes because there's no way to always know how to do the right thing is the fundamental problem. And then there's things like, I think of another example. Let's say that um, you have in one system, there's like a, a, you know, like two or three fields. Phone number is a great one. So some systems have like Salesforce. I actually prefer Salesforce's way, even though it's simpler. You get a phone field. I mean, yeah, you different phone. You got a phone, you got mobile, whatever. But but it's just a big text field. You can put any garbage in there you want, right? Now, if you, through Salesforce's UI, if you actually type like a, a, what Salesforce thinks is a phone number for your locale, then they'll, they might kind of, you tab out and kind of auto formats, put some Mm -hmm. parentheses and dashes or whatever. But in general, I mean, they got an extension. You can just put like X two, five, three or whatever for the extension. You can do whatever you want. You can represent however you want. It's just a text field. A lot of systems store like, for example, just digits. It only only allows digits and it will format it on the fly if it can. And also like there's a separate field for the extension. So this might be a phone field and then an extension field. Right. And, if you're going from like, say, Salesforce's model, 
it's it's easy to go from that that second model where you have like a separate extension field to the cell. Like if you're pushing that to Salesforce, that's fine. You just combine the two fields and you may like put a, a an concatenate like an X between them to represent the extension and you stuff that in Salesforce, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Going the other way is difficult though. Because yeah. people can represent an extension however they want, or they can, maybe it's a weird number of digits, and just, or maybe you know, there's a leading zero or a leading one or not or whatever, and it's and the other system only accepts exactly ten digits, like if it's a U.S. based system right. or whatever. And it's, so you need this kind of bi-directional sync, or maybe this notion of like this a like three sixty view or 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 a master data model or the like ODS around you. Now, you get, but you get intractable problems like this. Like, there's yeah. actually no good way to solve this. You're going to have to either lose data, or you're going to have to accept like <laughs> at some point, like yeah. kind of losing <clears throat> in a way, losing data. Or I don't even. No, because if it can't recognize the phone number, say it's going from the Salesforce version to a granular phone number. Um. Yeah. You. you it just won't sync. Yeah. It won't know how to parse it. Yep. Or it will attempt to parse it, and yep. you're calling some random person. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Or it overwrites. It, again, it doesn't quite know how to parse it or or reverse parse it, whether it be like format it, to go yeah. into another system. And so you end up updating that other system, which had a valid phone number, but you just hosed it up with what's actually not the full, complete, valid phone number now. Yeah. Because you didn't know how to format it or parse it correctly. And that's hard. It is. Because it, it's prone to human error. These People typo something, so you can't really <laughs> rely on digit yeah. counts and things like that, or... Or just grabbing no. digits because then you lose the context of someone's extension or what they chose to represent as the extension, whether it's X or EXT or EXT dot or EXT colon, or sometimes phone number period yep. extension. Yep. I mean, I've I've done it and it's it's crazy. No, it's and tough. I've I've seen projects. This is one of those things that people will like you know bring in like you know IBM or Accenture or you know one of these firms, multi million dollar project to just try to basically evolve their data towards a master model but it's these are big long like multi-year projects yeah and you know you've got they bring all these you know i was picking on ibm because i've literally been on a project when when they brought in ibm to do this exact type of thing and like all these data people and programmers and 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 that that's actually the first this the project i'm thinking of was like easily well yeah probably 20 years ago maybe not quite 20 years ago showing your age and no this is because i had you know, I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of project managers are just not very good. <laughs> they're, either, they're actually not project managers and they don't know that. <laughs> or they just, you know, they got the certification or whatever, but they just... Maybe your standards are too high. It's Lower well, your standards. It's an incredibly hard job, first of all. <clears throat> it's like, you have to be, oh my gosh, the politics, the communication, plus you have to be technically minded and there's a lot of math and whatever. It's actually an extremely hard job and you're just wrangling lots of people, which is... I would never want that job. But well, this, I, on this project, I, I want to I would this. say, okay. I just want to say that. It, I think it sounds like your project manager either is doing too much. Like they're not doing project management. They're doing project management plus. Could and be. It, it's detriment to the project manager. I, I see project management go wrong in so many different ways. That's one of them. But this actually, even though I was fairly young, I'd seen enough, at that point in my career, enough bad project managers. This project manager blew me away. She was amazing i was like holy crap this is how you do project management she like knew how to talk to people on the on the that were on the project to get them to do what they she needed them to do with with you know and kind of made them like have fun doing it too as i'm just watching this going this is amazing and she managed up well you know Hmm. and and was that really like good kind of 
go between between the stakeholders and the people working on the project. And it was just, you know, in project management meetings, which are usually people dread, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of project management status update meetings, or whatever. Like they were, they were actually fun. She was fun. And she made it, she actually made it fun and did her job really, really, really well. And I was like, and you know, and she, and she didn't bug us with all the technical crap. Like, but I would see her, you know, she would, she would go off and like do all the, you know, CPM or PERT or whatever these, you know, these functions and numbers and figuring out like, she's got to take what, how, how, how done people say they are and like actually figure out like how much work we got done versus the, the versus budget we've spent and all that, just mm-hmm. all, and she would she'd go back and do all that stuff herself. But I mean, I would see some of that sometimes and like, she was just really good at all that. I'm just like, man, that's, and that's a, pro, that's a project manager right there. Yeah, and those are, like those it. are rare creatures that are, that are at that level. And that's a, that's a tough skill. I mean, that's one of those things I think it takes. First of all, you just have to have certain innate talents, mm-hmm. especially on the people side, which I don't have. I don't think I do. No, you don't. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but then there's all these other either skill, the skills you have to build and just, it, it, I mean, I think it takes, you know, years. It's because it's not just the skills and the talent. It's also it's experience being through a lot of projects, seeing things done right, seeing things done wrong, mm-hmm. and where you just have kind of over time like build just intuition and wisdom about things. Again, especially on the people side, and maybe I maybe that's my bias. Like I think the people stuff so much harder because that's my weak. That I'm a little bit weaker on that, mm-hmm. and so I tend to like respect that more or value it more. I don't know. I think you could you could draw an an, an analogy to to say working with multiple systems and all the different formats that they expect and the different limits that they impose in the, within their system. And you're trying to collect all that information. I think that's the same thing exists with people. We all have okay. different personalities and emotions and things that set us off and requirements for how you and I interface. And you almost have to kind of be a chameleon to know that this is how I interface with this person and get the best result. And this is how I interface with this person. And just the ability to read people, like you listen to what they say, but you're actually listening to how they say it and yeah. how they behaved in the past. And like, it's almost like as a parent, like you can just tell when your kids are lying or you just kind of know what they're going to do next or you know what to call BS on or whatever. Like it's almost that, but in an adult professional level. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way. And they can't teach, but it. the thing is, this is, this is something that can't be taught. Yeah. You're not going to learn this no. at the PMI Institute or whatever it's called. No. You know, you can't teach people this. But I feel like most professions, there's just aspects, I don't know, maybe some more than others that you just can't teach. Yeah. You got it or you don't. You got it or you don't. Anyway. So yeah, OD, I think the thing is interesting. Um, I kind of corrected you on one thing. What's wrong? What are you doing? That was, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to add uh, you got it or you don't to our title list, and I uh, combined got and it. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that just made you crack up, huh? God, you're such a child. <laughs> Let's uh, go. <laughs> yeah. uh, we know it, John. We get yeah. it. We get it. I'm just saying. Just yeah. I'm not laughing because it wasn't funny. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I know. I haven't had anything to drink either, so. Yeah, you have no excuse. No excuse. Maybe that's your problem. You need a drink. To calm me I down. I certainly do. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's pouring rain. I'm not. That's what's well, yeah. not going to stop pouring rain, though. Yeah. That's the problem. And the, yeah, our commute home is going to suck. It's going to suck. All right. What I was going to say was, you mentioned, um, I think you got this right, actually. Or kind of right. But, and this is according to. Uh, who was it? Was it Brett Taylor? I can't remember one of one of these guys that Benioff was so excited about that he was. Uh, who was who's in charge of? Ah, I can't remember. Anyway, um, they, but they were talking about the 360 thing and how like MuleSoft, what what role MuleSoft plays. And their story is 
for all the Salesforce properties that that's going to be handled, you know, native internally to Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and integration with non-Salesforce properties, like that's what, you know, basically the story is, yes, pay our MuleSoft people a lot of money and you can do whatever integration you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we'll expose the universal ID to you or whatever. It'll work. <clears throat> um, there was talk of, I don't know how many people are actually interested in this, but about that Java license kind of licensing. I don't know if it's a, it's kind of a license chain, but it's also, it's more of a, just like what we're going to give you for free change. Yeah. Oracle's doing Java licensing. I don't understand. I mean, I, I guess I understand it. I guess for commercial use, like I, I guess I understand it, but <clears throat> I've never done any commercial Java, so it didn't ring my bell. Yeah. I, and I, I don't fully understand. I'm not going to, because I, I think the people that I tend to understand this more are people that actually have, because I mean, Java has always been something you can pay for mm-hmm. and a lot, especially bigger companies do because they need, they need main, the main thing is they need indemnification, but also support support's important. But when you're a big company, you have lots of assets at risk. Um, you need indemnification and I'm not a lawyer, but basically that kind of means that um, if, if uh, let's say Oracle gets sued because it turns out they they put code in in the Java runtime or virtual machine or whatever that um, they didn't have a license to, mm-hmm. that means that they can't go after. If I buy if I license Java from Oracle, that whoever was um, the the part the aggrieved party or whatever can't sue me. Now they do sue me. Oracle will actually step in and say, well, whatever beef you have against them because of what we did with Java, we're going to take care of that. That's mm-hmm. kind of indemnification. Basically, just the, the stuff. It, pre- it pre- prevents <laughs> the, the crap from rolling downhill. Yeah. So tons of companies have been buying Java forever. And I think a lot of people, when they're so, when they're so you know, shocked and hand-wavy about this or whatever, clutching their pearls, is <laughs> <laughs> because they don't realize that people have been paying a lot of money for Java for a long time. Now, probably not as much money as Oracle would like them to pay, or not, a, not as many companies paying for Java as what Oracle would like, and maybe what that's what this is all about. But basically, I think... What it boils down to is for most releases of Java, it's not going to be supported as long as what it was without you having to buy it. Mm. So if you want to stay on Java 8 for, I think Java 8, like the public free support ends in like another year or something like that. And if you want, if you want to stay on Java 8, like you, and and that's the thing. It's like, don't stay on Java 8. Like you need to, there's no reason you can keep your same code base for the same things you're running and and continue to upgrade your, the version of your your VM because Java's like, forwards compatible i guess for the most part you still need to test stuff but i mean it's pretty good at that just like salesforce is pretty good at like all the apex you write is forwards compatible you don't have to like is it forwards or backwards i don't know whatever the word is i can't remember i'm directionally challenged i guess (laughs) i never know whether i'm coming or going (laughs) so so i don't know if it's forwards or backwards compatible but you know what i mean yes so um yeah just i mean it's kind of a good idea like upgrade anyway you're getting you're getting improvements to speed and all kinds of efficiency. So like, it's a good idea to like not run like a seven year old version of a VM. Um, but if but you if, want, but if it ain't broke, why, why try to fix it? Well, that's true. I think that's, that's I think true. that's the but bigger the, the issue. Problem is is people Oracle's, feel like if they Oracle's, touch something that's working, mm-hmm. it's so Oracle's not going to for keep, keep patching your old version of a VM forever for free. Now I guess that's true. Yeah. You can pay them to patch it forever. And we used to get those patches forever, but now Oracle said, okay, after like for our, because they, now they also have, they have LTS releases mm-hmm. and like, and then like non LTS releases. 
the nano OTS ones, they get, I think it's like six months of patching because they're going to, they're going to be, also Java has changed. I mean, they used to be, I mean, they'd go three or four years, maybe even longer. Like between Java four and five, it seemed like that was forever. And, and now they've gone, you know, to this, I don't know who invented this or whatever, but like, it reminds me of like how, you know, like Ubuntu released, they, they don't, they have like, aren't they time box releases? It's just like every certain, every certain number of months or whatever, they are doing a release and whatever gets in, gets in. And mm-hmm. if something's not ready, it doesn't make it. And so I think it's every six months. I could be wrong, but like every, let's just say every six months, there's a, you know, it's going to be Java 11, then Java 12, then Java 13. And every three or four of those, I can't remember, or maybe it's every six versions is just going to be automatically a long-term support. So you can stay on that one for much longer and the public support will be longer. But again, if you're on one of these other ones and you want longer support, you can pay Oracle to, to be backporting in like security fixes. That's pretty much what you're getting only is security fixes, I think, mm-hmm. and maybe major bugs or something. But you don't have to pay for Java still. I mean, if, you, if you've already been paying for Java, you're going to keep paying for Java. If you haven't been paying for Java and your company doesn't care, you probably won't, you don't have to start paying for Java. Uh, because there's open JDK, there's and there's also, I mean, a lot of people have like they get their JVM through their their um, their container, so like their WebSphere or their JBoss or whatever, mm-hmm. and that's where their their JVM comes with that. So they're already ba- paying for that, and that vendor is going to be maintaining that 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 VM. Um, and then again, you've got open JDK. That's what most people will, I guess. I think a lot of developers are able to just be using is just the open JDK. And it's it's all I mean Java is open source so it's just and in fact the Open JDK project is very healthy I mean it's being I mean, there are tons of active committers that are that staying on top of all the security patches and features and all that stuff so you can have you've got free in all way in all manners of the word free access to basically a modern any version of Java uh, you want for free that's pretty cool yeah. that the in community and the environment and the nature of it is kind of set up to where you have options. Yeah, even yeah. if even if Oracle was being unreasonable and saying we're charging everyone for everything, it sounds like you would still yeah. have an option. And and I gotta give now this is a Sun thing. So I have to we have to give Sun credit, but they, they right. went through the process of at some point deciding to open source Java, which was considering how big Java had already gotten at the time, I mean that was a monumental undertaking that cost them I mean who knows how many millions of dollars because First of all, there was a ton of code in the JVM that was that was licensed code. Sun didn't own it. They had licensed, you know, whether it's 2D drawing things, sound things, MIDI, whatever. There's all kinds of code they had that was pr- this proprietary code that they don't they don't have the rights to release or open source. So they had to go and negotiate, license all that stuff, or do clean room implementations to replace it. So you have to have five, you have to find engineers that have never seen like the MIDI code, right? You know, mm-hmm. MIDI is right, the music thing. Yeah. That have never seen the MIDI code they license because they've got to have a clean room implementation. People that aren't biased by the code they've already seen, so they can't get sued or whatever. So they either had to, you know, go and license, basically buy an open source license from these vendors that they got this code from, or they had to, you know, do re-implement it. And that took years, but they finally open sourced and uh, we're and Java's always been kind of open anyway. They've always had well, not always, but for the long time, they've had the, the JCP and um, which is the the process by which the Java community, like all these different companies and individuals, whatever can come together and like say, Hey, we want to spec for, you know, JSPs or we want to spec for messaging or whatever. I mean, pretty much everything that's released in Java is according to a, like a spec mm-hmm. that they come up with first. So yeah, it's always been pretty open. And I mean, as far as I can tell, like the, I know there's all kinds of hot new shiny things and, and some of those things are, I think have displaced Java in certain areas, but it's still like the, you got to look at the language list. It's still like 
number one language. And, and Java's gotten, I mean, I don't know. I think a few years ago, I was kind of at a low point with Java. Mm-hmm. A few years, maybe a little bit longer than that. But um, really with Java 8 and 9 especially, and then things like Kotlin, I mean, e- even just when I'm doing Java now, it's so much more pleasurable to use. I mean, the, the, it's got you know, closures and, all, and there's all kinds of imp- improvements to the language itself that, that was made to Java for a long time a laborious language and got really behind C Sharp. I mean, it, Java still doesn't have you know, things like properties and actual properties and actual events. It's still mm-hmm. all convention-based. But not only have people, just developers have gotten so used to that, but also the tooling. I mean, like, I never write getters and setters and stuff like that. Like, just IntelliJ does it for me. So you get really fast at... And, and I still, that's still, I think, a criticism of Java is, for better or worse, my IDE is actually generating a lot of the code for me. But it does take away that argument. It's like, no, yeah, Java doesn't have properties, but the tooling does create, you know, if all you want is basic getters and setters, mm-hmm. it, it creates all that for you. Yeah. And then you got things like Kotlin, which, oh my gosh, I, I really like Kotlin. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moaning over it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there are a certain small sliver of people that this change in, the, in, the, in Oracle's policy might negatively affect, but I think most people, it's, it's yeah, you may, need to, you may need to stay on top of your JVM versions a little bit more closely, but you, mm-hmm. you still, if you don't want to pay for Java, you're not going to have to. It's like someone slightly moved their cheese. Didn't hide it, didn't take it away, just like moved it from here to here. Well, for some OCD people, that's a big deal. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and some people are just entitled as all hell to think that you know, people should keep doing all kinds of free stuff for them, and you're a horrible person if you don't. <laughs> and to that, no. Yeah. <laughs> Although we are running long for hey, we are, and I need to head out pretty soon. So, what? Uh, any, any other? Do we need? Is there any other business we need to take care of? Any other uh, feedback or anything we've been failing to get to? No, no. Well, uh, I guess then if we so we read some emails, and if 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 you would like to email us, please uh, shoot us an email info at gooddayserpodcast dot com. Uh, whether it's a question for us or something you want us to read on the air or just private feedback, you want to humiliate us whatever will we take it all uh we do have a slack and i think we're man i think we're at like 498 we should have a, a prize for whoever's the 500th person i think <laughs> what that is we still have shirts <laughs> we can send like a goodie package with like shirts and uh stickers and like yeah well, special little treats from john in the u.s or a handmade small batch artisanal treats <clears throat> from john um you don't know that but i am working on treats <laughs> Whatever, I don't know what that means. Um, but uh, yeah, our Slack is awesome. So you should join it if you're not in. Why are you not in yet? You're listening to this podcast right now and you're still not in the Slack. I'm not logged in. No, I'm not talking to you. Oh. I'm talking to people listening right now, oh. our community. It is, uh, how do you get to it? It's gooddayserpodcast.com and you just click on community uh-huh. and uh, you just have to give us your email address so we can, so John can manually add you to the Slack. What else? Uh, please leave us a review. We like getting reviews and stars and hearts and thumbs ups and whatever your thing supports. It helps people find us. That's what they say. Not yeah. that it matters because we already have the, we already have the community we want. The, the, the people listening now are the right people, right? And luckily we don't have advertisers, so we don't have to worry about getting numbers for numbers sake. That's right. Cause that just is the wrong incentive all the way around. <laughs> and to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. <laughs>